Hello, and welcome to Six Figure Authors, the show that helps you take your writing career to the next level. I'm Lindsay Baroker, and I'm here with my two co-hosts. I'm Joe Lalo. And I'm Andrea Pearson. And this week, we're going to be doing part two, uh, discussing kind of what Andrea learned as an instructor and attendee of Chris Catherine Rush's and Dean Wesley Smith's annual business masterclass for authors a couple weeks ago. Uh, and today we'll be covering contract negotiations, licensing your work, branding, and a little bit about podcasting fiction, uh, among other subjects. And these are just kind of, uh, we'll give our uh, thoughts and opinions, but, you know, basically summing up what was covered uh, at the show. And if we don't agree with something, we'll, we'll try to mention it. Or if we don't have experience with it, we'll just, uh, we will not mention it, I guess. Or we will not talk extensively about it. Uh, so before we jump into that, do you guys have any news that you want to share for folks? Uh, sure. Not a whole lot has happened since last week, but you know, it's still NaNoWriMo as we record this and I'm still plugging away at it. Um, assuming I finish my words today, because I got a late start, um, I will be one day away from the 50,000 word mark. So I'm running at about triple capacity at the moment, which was my goal. So yay consistency. I usually don't have it. Uh, that being said, 50,000 words is question mark percent. It's about six chapters through my outline and my outline's about 10 chapters, but my stuff is always climax heavy. So I really don't know what percentage of book I'm at or how long the book will be when I'm finished, but I'm at least on track to, uh, to, uh, you know, finish my, uh, my projected word count, which is sort of my goal. They keep track now of your streak and my streak is eight years long and I'd like it to just sort of be as many years as I've been doing it. So. NaNoWriMo, my main news. All right, cool. It's only the ninth as we, we are recording this a couple days early this week. Um, so that's good. That's more than I've got this month. I uh, was editing, I think, and I started a new one, but then um, I'll be at 20 books next week. So to take that off. Uh, for my news, uh, I thought I would mention that um, I agreed to speak at Brian Cohen is doing self-publishing live is the name of his conference next August. I don't usually speak at conferences, so if you want to go and hear me uh, stumble my way through um, hopefully giving some decent information, that is an option for you. I think he's got tickets at selfpublishinglive.com. And um, I have friends in the area, so that is how I get wrangled into speaking for Brian and nobody else. Um, I will also be, though, in May, uh, Jay Thorne and Zach Bohannon are doing, I think they're May... I don't remember somebody else is involved in that too. I know Joanna Penn's going and I forget the name because I haven't looked at it for a couple months. They set it up earlier. That's in May. And um, just in case it's going to be in Memphis, I believe. So if you are near one of those areas or would like to be near one of those areas, you can check it out um, in less self-centered news. <laughs> uh, I just thought it was interesting. I was kind of surfing through the medical romance category because a friend of mine is looking at possibly doing one. And I'd heard, um, Alex Newton mentioned uh, on a Caleb's report that it's a newer romance category on Amazon. I think it just came into existence last May. So, you know, it was like, oh, that's maybe one you could check out if you're uh, hoping to get in before the, you know, I think it takes like a 50,000 sales ranking or something to get in the top 100 of it now. Um, but I was impressed that Harlequin has been putting out all these books in this medical romance category with like puppies on them and doctors with stethoscopes. And I was just impressed that a traditional publisher got their stuff together that quickly and is now like, it's by multiple authors and there's a whole bunch of them. So I don't know what that says, but tra traditional publishing is paying attention to uh, when they put new categories on Amazon, it looks like, because uh, 
It used to be that you'd have two or three years, I think, before anybody else kind of noticed when a new category came in. Um, last news I thought I'd share is actually one of my cover designers that I work with pretty regularly that does the Photoshop manipulation stuff, and they do a good job. They've got a number of artists. Um, they actually had their Facebook page of five years just taken down, no explanation other than the content was too sexual in nature. And they had, you know, they tried for like two weeks and they couldn't get anything, any recourse back. And I'm pretty sure these are just like romance book covers that you would find on Amazon. Not like, I don't, if they do erotica, it's not on their portfolio on their website. And I've never noticed them posting anything that wouldn't, you wouldn't see on Amazon. And I just thought I'd share that as a reminder to us all <laughs> that Facebook and the other social media platforms are not ours and they can take away the platforms we've built on those sites without any warning whatsoever and you may not have any recourse. So uh, just another reminder that it's a good idea to you know, use, focus on building your own mailing list, which you do control since <laughs> you pay for hopefully a monthly fee with a mailing host provider. And uh, of course, it never hurts to funnel people to your own website. But I, you know, I would focus mostly on the mailing list, which is the main reason to have them go to your website. All right, Andrea, I babbled on there. Do you have any news of your own? Um, yeah, I'm still in that storybundle.com forward slash nano um, bundle that's still live till the end of this month. And so if you want to go take advantage of that, um, dear listeners. Um, and then also, uh, I've just been working on the revisions for Evening Storm. I need to get it to 50,000 words. That's always my goal. <laughs> my books tend to be short and I'm like, they're very plot heavy and very light on description. And so I have to go back and be like, okay, how can I beef this up? <laughs> um, and so I was like removing a thousand words and added a thousand words, which a thousand words makes a huge difference when you're at 40,000 uh, words total. Um, but I'm, let's see, I've also been focusing on simplifying my business a great deal. So I've been trying to get business plans together for my pen names. So I'm probably going to tie off my pen name that does illustrated kids books completely, just finish a whole bunch of projects there because I'm kind of burning out on that end. And then, um, I'm wanting to start up my romance pen name again. But uh, yeah, it just takes time and figuring out my processes. And those of you who want to learn more about my process and how I, how I'm able to be productive even when I have three kids and I'm homeschooling and all that. I'm getting interviewed on John and Penn's podcast on Monday, and that's going live on November 25th of 2019. So go and find her interview of me if you're listening in the future. And if you're listening in the past, then go listen on the 25th. <laughs> That's actually not bad. I was thinking that she might be somebody that records them a number of months ahead of time. And I thought you were going to say like November 25th, 2021, I'll be on, on the podcast. Yeah, no, she schedules way in advance and then records pretty close to when it goes live. All right. Well, that's a good way to do it. Then you don't get any outdated stuff. Um, before we start jumping in here, I just wanted to address a comment that Danny left on our um, last week's show, where we were kind of talking about, you know, some of the advice at the workshop was to wait to have like five books out to start marketing or 100 books out if you are uh, <laughs> super prolific. Um, and Danny was saying, well, you know, I think maybe when I get my first novel out, I, I should try to start a, you know, put a little time into marketing that and you know what I would do exactly the same thing. I think it, it's worthwhile, especially if you're writing a lot of books quickly to wait. But if you're kind of thinking, well, I'll do one a year or something, you might as well put some effort into marketing that. I mean, it's really hard to just put it out and not do anything. Um, 
And also Amazon in particular, I'm not sure if this is true in the other stores, but they, send a, they seem to favor new releases a little bit, and it's just easier to get the ball rolling on a new release. Whereas, because uh, I've definitely probably put the same amount of money at different times into promos as a new release, and it just seems like with a new release, it's a lot easier to sort of get things going and maybe get a little bit of an organic boost. Um, but yeah, if you're going to be publishing ten, eight books in a series, you might wait into put a lot of money and time into marketing, maybe just you know, tinker around with it at the beginning. And if you are doing it with one book, like we talked about, make sure you got the mailing list in the back and, and something to entice them so you can kind of capture that reader because we don't want to think it's true, but readers totally will forget about you. You know, like once they've read like 10 books by you and, you know, at that point you're probably cemented in their head or you've written a whole series they really loved. But for voracious readers, especially, you know, if they're reading like imagine a book a day, how quickly they will forget authors and even series and that stuff. So uh, if you are going to market just one book, do try to capture that person so you can reach out to them when you have more books out. All right. looks like the first uh, panel that we're going to talk about here was one on the gaming industry and whether that's something writers can get involved in uh, as far as licensing and that sort of thing. And uh, Andrea, as someone myself who's done tabletop and, you know, online role-playing games and various just basic computer games over the year, fantasy stuff, I was interested in this. Uh, do you want to give an overview of what the talk was about? I was hoping you were going to say how to say that M-M-O-R-P-G-S. <laughs> M-M, multiplayer, massive multiplayer online role-playing game. But do you like more? No, no, no. Well, M-M-O-R-P-G. Okay. I was like, I'm not sure how people, what people say for that. But yeah, this, okay, so this panel was... Basically, basically, Lauren Coleman, who is the owner of Catalyst Game Labs, and he um, he touched on um, working for hire, basically keeping your brand growing because if your brand is not growing, then it's shrinking, and uh, working with good people. He talked about how there's quite a few people in this industry who are really good people, and if you meet, meet a jerk, walk away from them. It's not like Hollywood where they're all out to get you. Um, he talked about how gamers will continue to buy games or basically buy product from game creators that they like forever. So true fans of a product buy from that product all the time. Um, and then he talked a lot about crowdsourcing and it was, um, it was pretty, I actually, I really enjoyed it a lot. Actually, I hadn't really thought about, I mean, it was one of those things in the future. I wanted to get my, get my books made into games, but he made it seem very approachable and very possible even for a brand new author. That's really encouraging. It's certainly something that like, I don't know that I necessarily would have pursued it, but it's certainly something that's always sort of been in the back of my head. Wouldn't it be nice if? So that's good to know. And uh, now I've spoken in the past about my rare but, but worthwhile dips into work for hire. I've done a few things that have, that have made for some pretty good months for me in the past. Uh, it sounds like that's a big part of the writer's role in the world of gaming. Is that right? Yeah. So... Um, Lauren was talking about how in the gaming industry, they're always, always, always looking for good writers and good artists. And so if this is something that our listeners are interested in, look into it seriously. Um, you need to have proof that you're a good writer, um, basically. So you can't be somebody who's never written anything ever. And then you need to be familiar with and love the worlds that are being written about. Uh, it's kind of the same when it comes to writing a new genre. If you don't, if you don't enjoy writing that genre, don't, don't do it, you know? And then he mentioned that being in the right place at the right time is important. 
and also taking on pretty much anything that comes your way. So if somebody says, Hey, I have this little paragraph that needs to be written. Don't say, Oh, it's only a paragraph. Why would I take time to write a paragraph? That's not going to do anything for me. If you say no too often, people aren't going to work, want to work with you. So just take on anything that comes your way, because if, if this is something you're interested in doing, then it will lead to more opportunities down the road. And then, um, my little comment on the being in the right place, at the right time, I would include attending the business masterclass as that <laughs> because it, I mean, the whole point of it is networking and then same with the licensing expo, you know, you go to make these sorts of connections. Now for writing for games, were these just kind of across the board he was talking about or like writing, like writing the words that get turned into a video game or like, I remember very early in my writing attempts to have a career, I submitted a proposal and sample chapters for Forgotten Realms book when, uh, I don't even remember if it was Wizards of the Coast yet, <laughs> then it might've still been TSR, but they were, they had additions basically and I didn't get selected, so. Your loss, Wizards of the Coast. <laughs> and I know what Wizards of the Coast is now. I learned that over, the, over this conference thing. <laughs> Much to my husband's embarrassment. He's like, you didn't know what it was before? <laughs> anyway, but yeah. Um, no, um, wait, what was your question? Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I distracted everybody with my bitterness towards not getting selected. <laughs> yeah. No, I was just wondering, like, what kind of opportunities are there available for people who... You know, well, I'll ask about licensing too, but who actually want to write for, like, is this more for writing for video games or writing tie-in novels for an existing game? Um, like that? The answer is yes. Um, he talked about how there's creative nonfiction and then there's fiction. So creative nonfiction is where you're writing for a game, you know, so you're writing the description, like what happens if this happens. It's, it's creative, um, it's nonfiction because it's a game, but there's also writing for the worlds themselves. And so there's all sorts of uh, different opportunities for somebody who would be interested in doing this type of thing. And he talked about how pretty much all the companies, I mean, he talked about Wizards of the Coast and how, or is it Coast? Is it one coast or two coasts? <laughs> wizards of the coast. Of so the coast. plural wizards, one coast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did mention them. So yeah, um, everybody's looking for skilled writers and, and again, the skilled artists, because I'm sure we do have people who, um, who art on the side. <laughs> right. Uh, and of course, something to be wary of with this stuff is that any characters you make in their world will belong to them. I know if you guys have followed uh, fantasy fans will know like Ari Salvatore and the Drist books. And basically he made this awesome character instead of characters and they become super popular and they still belong to Wizards of the Coast. So, um, and then he's gone on, of course, to write fantasy of his own. But, you know, I, I bet there's, like, there's people who have done that and like, man, I, I wish I had those characters and I could self-publish some stuff with those characters and, and make a little more money. Um, but uh, I'm just curious about mentioning crowdsourcing. Is are people? Is this kind of like I let's say my Dragon Blood world? I want to make a deck of cards for Dragon Blood or a board game, and I'm going to Kickstarter to finance that. Is that what you're talking about with this? And is there anybody they mentioned that's doing that? Authors? Um, they didn't talk about authors that are doing it already, but they but they did talk about how that's a really fantastic way to get off the ground. Um, because he, he commented, uh, that if you've got a solid platform and you can move them and you can prove you can move them by running a little $200 Kickstarter, um, campaign or a $300 Kickstarter campaign, then that's a really good way to get started and get attention. Cause you can take that and say, Hey, look, I did this little 
card game and this is these are the results I had and then you could take that to some you know some one of these licensing expos and to the gamers and you know say this is what I've got and this is what I'm bringing to the table let's see if we can make something work it would be interesting for somebody who is really into that also gaming as well as um writing and that wanted to take the time to put together a game or, you know, get together your friends that have some experience and do it. Cause I feel like if you had a pretty good mailing list, like if you're a pretty well established mid list author, you could probably do quite well on Kickstarter with a game. It's actually, I hardly ever see authors making much on Kickstarter. Like there's, there's some anthologies and things that, you know, get good backing, but you, you know, there, we've talked about a few exceptional authors or exceptions that have made a hundred thousand dollars, but most people you see are struggling to make like the 1500 they want for doing print and audio book or whatever. But I've seen games like make a million or, you know, it's, it's crazy how much people, cause they, they don't have to know the world or anything either. They can just think, Hey, this is cool. There's dragons. So obviously I need to back this. <laughs> All right. My next question is, um, because this is a little bit more where I would be interested in is licensing something I've written to a gaming company. Because uh, that would be just like, here, here's my signature. I read the contract. Please send the money. All right, hi. That's how it works in my mind anyway. <laughs> the ideal. So did they talk about that, you know, and like at what point they might be interested in an author's worlds? Yeah, they talked about that quite a bit. Um, they, he, he stressed that you would need to seek them out in the beginning um, because it's not like Hollywood where going to them is bad because then they'd take advantage of you. Uh, they don't know that you exist generally. And unlike Hollywood, they're willing to work with authors who have a smaller platform. You don't have to have sold, you know, a million copies of one book to get a game made because games are such lower budget items, you know? And so in the gaming industry, you're more likely to run into people who aren't going to rip you off and you're more likely to to run into them if you're going to the licensing expo. And um, so, yeah, so that's, that's pretty much that right there. Um, you need to have a solid platform. You need to have proof that you've sold books, a newsletter list, a fan base. Um, these are all really, really abstract things. I mean, it's concrete. You can see how many Twitter followers you have, but, and this is something we'll go back, go over a few times across this episode. You, nobody wants to put hard numbers on any of this because every situation is slightly different. Um, and so if you have the ability to move fans, um, and he talked about a personality that can move fans, that doesn't mean like a personality who's like out on the stage and like, Hey, let's do this. But somebody who, when you speak, you know, your listener, your, um, sorry, your listeners, your readers listen and you, you know, you release a new book and people download it, or you have a, a video that you post, put up and people respond, things like that. So the basic, and then the first question that they're probably going to ask is, can we crowdsource this? So you have a platform that you can show them that is functional, that can it make something good. And then they're going to be say, they'll say, let's crowdsource this and test it. And just to see how well your platform responds and you don't have to, um, you can actually go to them. Like I was saying with a platform or a crowdsource project that's already done well, and then present that to them. And then they'll be more willing to take it on completely without um, seeing how your fans respond because the thing is they're not going to have a built-in fan base for you. They're going, they're going to be wanting to use your existing fan base and then build from that. And so if your existing fan base is non-existent, <laughs> uh, if your existing fan base, if you, okay, whatever, <laughs> you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> 
All right. It's, I'm frankly impressed that like you, the numbers you're throwing out there for a potential uh, test at crowdfunding was like a couple hundred dollars because I, uh, something that scared me away from really attempting uh, crowdfunding at any levels because I'm not confident to be able to hit like the two or 3,000 that might be called for for a larger project. So it's good to know that aiming lower and being successful can still help you. Um, all right. So naturally, all of us on this podcast and a good portion of our listeners are indie authors and they're accustomed to doing things themselves. Uh, is there a reasonable equivalent to self-publishing in the game world? Yes, there is. And this is something that's new. Um, he was, um, Lauren was telling me, uh, uh, basically, okay, so there's two print on demand com companies that have recently started. They're both doing really well. And he said that they've, you know, they've only been going for maybe a year or two, a couple of years, a few years. Um, they, one is called thegamecrafter.com. The other is Drive Through RPG, and the website for that is DTRPG.com. Um, DTR, sorry, define the relationship. I don't know if you guys know what a DTR is. <laughs> that totally threw me there for a minute. Um, but so, what, from what I want, remember, both of them have a marketplace, so you have a chance of finding fans through their sites, um, and they do, they're basically like Create Space or KDP print, they're print on demand. And so all you do is you upload your game. So like if you, if you have cards, you upload the files, the front and backs for the cards, and then you tell them what the specifications are for it. And then people can print the game and buy it and it gets shipped to them. And um, a lot of people, the next problem people have is like, well, what about artwork? And he said that that stops people up, but it doesn't need to. So like a basic card could cost 25 to $30 to have created. And so that's, that's not that much, you know? not compared to the hundreds that we're used to people throwing around. Um, and he said, you know, go to Fiverr, go to DeviantArt to find artists. And, and like what you were saying, um, I actually asked him if I should run a Kickstarter for an audiobook. you know, it was like a $2,000 Kickstarter. And he goes, no, start much, much smaller than that. Um, so two or $300. And part of that I think is also, it's a lot easier to reach that, but you can, um, you get a little bit of a, of an endorphin rush off of $200 when you reach that goal, you know, you're like, yes, I can do it. I can do a $500 one and cards against humanity. That is a fun game. <laughs> um, but yes, that's how they started. Yeah. They're just Kickstarter and just text. Um, and actually the gaming community on Kickstarter is the healthiest community on Kickstarter. And so it's a lot more possible to have bigger, um, campaigns, that are revolve around games like exploding kittens, you know, I mean, that's also a, a fun game. <laughs> it sure is. Uh, all right. So we're going to move on to a, a next topic here. We're going to be talking a little bit about branding, which actually is a topic I remember from when I did the business class uh, a couple years ago. Uh, so first question is, I think the best way we could start off here is just to define what a brand is and are there different types of brands? Yeah, there are. Um, Okay, so branding is marketing at an advanced level. Uh, it's more than just book covers. So the beginning marketing, um, it's your beginning marketing is figuring out how to have a professional book cover or figuring out ads or figuring out how to handle BookBub, things like that. But, but um, branding at the advanced level is more than just covers. It, it, it involves your website, your social media, all of the products related to that brand. And if you have more than one series, you need to brand them separately. It involves your name, your company, even how you, how you conduct yourself online and in public. And yes, uh, there are different types of brands. Station um, brand, which is usually like a publishing company. There's service brands. They provide a service. Nonfiction authors are service brands. Um, there's product brands. 
and this is where a series would fit or a, a standalone book or whatever. There's personality brands and that's what we are as authors. Um, and then everything you do reflects, reflects that brand as a personality brand. So your personality brand covers your social media and, and what you talk about and all of that sort of stuff. Um, you can be more than one type of brand and, and highly successful authors usually are. So they're usually like a blend of personality brands, service brands, product brands, et cetera. Um, but yeah, branding is, it's more advanced. It's a bigger bite to take for a lot of, a lot of authors. A lot of authors aren't ready to tackle that yet, but when you get to the point where, you know, you've got enough of a platform, you've got enough books out, you need to take a look at your, your brand and start tweaking it. This is something that I always admire when authors really get it right. And I think it's a lot easier if you consistently write in the same genre and all your series should look like thriller novels, you know, and I, I, I guess I'll ask if uh, they had any advice for someone like me who is like, this month I'm doing sci-fi, next month I'm going to do steampunk, later on I'm going to do some urban fantasy. You know, I, I certainly have consistent looks within the series but then you end up changing it because sci-fi is just going to look a lot different. You're using different fonts, obviously a spaceship <laughs> sci-fi kind of look for your covers. Um, you know, I, I have like my, my brand is quirky heroes, epic adventures on some of my business cards as something that encompasses everything I write. But I, I don't know how I would make that into like, I, I don't know. I think we talk about logos in, in a few minutes, but I, you know, it's just been sort of a struggle for me. And I, I mean, I guess I don't know how important it is, but to make anything cohesive when I'm writing in different genres, uh, did they have any thoughts uh, or did anybody ask about that? <laughs> okay. So what they suggested doing was building a brand deck and they said that you're going to want to have one of these for pretty much all of your series, pretty much every aspect of your company that you sell that is not related to the other things. So you'll want to have an overall brand deck and an overall brand for everything that, that you try to have a compass encompass pretty much everything. And, and luckily, Lindsay, you don't write like erotica and sci-fi, you know, under the same pen name. We don't know about your secret pen names, <laughs> but, um, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, but so so they suggest building a brand deck. And for those who don't know, a brand deck is sort of like a media page. And for those who don't know what a media page is, <laughs> it puts all of the necessary information for that brand in one spot. So when you approach cover designers, you're able to give them a brand deck as a point of reference. And then that gives them enough to go off of to build a cover that will fit that brand deck. And so, so for like science fiction, a brand deck would say all of your sci-fi books are this. They, they match this thing, even if they're not even in the same series. Um, but you can brand each series separately and you will want to. But they were even mentioning that you would use the same colors on all of your sci-fi books. And then all of your fantasy books, not necessarily your sci-fi and fantasy all would have the same colors. But, you know, fantasy would have a set of colors and sci-fi. Um, okay, so a brand deck would include the colors you want on the covers, and generally it's just going to be two colors, maybe three. Um, anything more than that confuses and dilutes the brand. And then also make sure your brand deck includes the HTML codes for those colors. And then you'll include the fonts you want to use, and make sure that you buy ones that are licensed for com commercial use, and be careful with hiring that out. And I'll talk about that in a little bit. But you'll also include stock images, so like models that you want to use. So if there's a specific look that you're going for, a specific hair color that is absolutely necessary, um, you'll want that in your brand deck. Um, any series information or particular wordings you want on the cover, um, any logos, the emotional tone, 
the key themes, the voice, the hook, series taglines, et cetera. And then, okay, so when hiring out fonts is concerned, so like hiring somebody to create a font for you, this is, I actually expected them to say that you should do this, but they say don't do it unless you absolutely have to because it's a lot more tricky. If you buy a font from a website, they usually have those licenses set up. You can research ahead of time um, what sort of licenses they have, what sort of things you're allowed to do. But when you're hiring somebody to make a font, you're going to want to make sure that everything is in the contract and everything is in writing, basically how you're able to use it and that you own that font and um, you, they can sell it. You can let them sell it to other people, but um, cause that's what happens a lot of times with the fonts that you buy online, they're going to be available for purchase by other people. Um, but make sure you have everything solidly written out and everything in the contract. And then let's see. So where the font is concerned, you're also going to want to have the size of the font, any width adjustments, character attributions. So basically if there's any beveling on it or drop shadows, strokes, things like that, you're going to want that to be in the brand deck as well. Um, and then also research brand decks and figure out what will best represent your series and your personality. You'll want one for every series, one for every pen name. Uh, you can create people, you can create people, <laughs> you can hire people to create a brand for you. So there are designers who don't just design covers, but they'll design websites and they'll design the way you present yourself to people. And so that's at the, at a bigger level. Um, but again, remember this is advanced marketing, tackle the earlier and the easier things first. And the, the good thing about branding is it, the reason why you want to do it is because it cements in readers' minds better than something else. Like it helps readers know who you are and what you represent. And it makes it easier for people to find you. It also makes it easier for you to get your things licensed. It makes it easier for people to know what you represent and for you to approach people when you're licensing. If you're organized and that includes how your, your company is presented online, then they'll be more likely to take you seriously. So just to clarify for myself and the listeners, this brand deck is more something you're going to take with you when you're trying to get a licensing deal with a gaming company or, or something, or is this, you're using these fonts on your covers also. And it's, I guess I, I, I feel like making your own font, it was going to get you maybe in trouble with like, cause you know, people do this, they pick off the wall fonts and then it doesn't look like a New York, published book it looks like some self-published by made it yourself thing just because they chose the wrong font so yeah I guess just clarify is this for having something to take with you when you're like trying to get these licensing deals or is this um, just part of your whole covers and everything and you mentioned your website um, you wouldn't, I don't think you would take a brand deck with you because the brand deck is how designers design things. And so it shows a designer how to create something, but the licensee, the license, you're the licensor, they're the licensee. No, wait, grammar. I don't remember which way it goes. You're the person who's selling out the license. The people that are buying those licenses, if you have a solid brand, then they, they can, they can look at that and see that you are, you know, cohesive, that you're organized, but the brand deck is more for designers and it's more for your own personnel. Like if you have an assistant or just for you, just to keep things organized so that if like your cover designer kills over halfway through a series, you're able to take it to another cover designer and say, Hey, this is what we were doing before. Um, it just basically keeps you in control and, and in charge of your company so that nothing slips through the cracks. 
Yeah, even if you use an off-the-wall or purchase a font, which you probably should, it's good to know because I've had that where like one cover designer does this and then he's too slow or something. So I just have these other people do the paperback and the auto audiobook or something, you know, things like that. And they're like, well, what's the font that they used? And if they don't know the font, it's going to be hard to make them match. And also something the authors need to recognize, a lot of the, the, the fonts that come standard to companies or programs like for example, Photoshop, it comes with Trajan Pro, which is a font that I absolutely love, but that one is not free for commercial use. You actually have to purchase it. So make sure that all of the fonts that are being used are okay for commercial use. And just because it comes with a program does not mean you have the rights to use it. All right. Good point. And um, they mentioned some stuff about logos too. Is this just a, a part of the brand that you want to have on your business card and your website? And Wizards of the Coast has a logo. <laughs> Even though they write all over the place, they're getting free press from us today. They sure are. <laughs> um, yeah, so they talked about logos that have your name on them or the name of your business. So whatever you want people to remember most. Um, and yes, pick something that represents you while still representing as close as possible what you write. So if you don't write romance, don't have a brand, a logo that looks romancy, even if you like it. Um, and then also you can create logos for series names and, and that logo, I mean, a lot of authors don't recognize it, but on their book cover, when it has the series name, that technically is a logo. So, I mean, you can use that across all of your book covers. You can use it, you know, outside of the book cover, as long as you have a permission from the cover designer, which some cover designers are really feisty about that sort of thing. Um, but, and I'll talk about this a little bit later, but make sure you have all that in writing with a cover designer. You actually have the permission to use that sort of stuff elsewhere. Um, so basically, um, whatever is best to represent you, your business, what you're selling, et cetera. Um, and then a logo is typically two or maybe three colors. And sometimes they include images, but it doesn't always have to. But font is probably the most important aspect of a logo because it's the part that people read and that they'll remember. That definitely makes a lot of sense. Um... All right. So were there any tips on the re uh, remaining in control of your brand? Like not just in terms of making sure it's consistent, but also keeping it going if there's a design team change, for example. Yeah. So like if, if your designer keels over. <laughs> like yeah. Um, yeah. So they strongly, strongly, strongly recommended buying all source files for everything for logos, covers, website designs, et cetera. And then you have a contract that says you won't use those as templates to sell to other people so that you, you're not going to go to another designer and say, Hey, you can sell this now, you know? Um, so what it does is it gives you control over your brand. So like I was saying earlier, if something happens to a, design, a designer in the middle of the project, you need to be able to have someone else replicate it to finish that work or be able to do it yourself. And again, that's where a brand deck is important. Um, but when we talked about this, like I just really started using cover designers. And so I'm used to maintaining control of that and having all of that in-house and not even needing to even think about whether I can create something off of it. Um, but they said when you approach, so if you're in the middle of a series, uh, approach your cover designer and see, see if retroactively or, you know, going back in the past, if that's the right word, if, if they'd be willing to sell you the source files. And if they're not willing to sell the source files, then see if you can have a contract that lets that basically says that you're going to be recreating those covers. If something happens to, to that cover designer, that somebody else who has to take over is going to be um, basing 
future book covers off of that for you, not for other authors. You need to make sure that they say that, that they know that that's what's going to be happening. Um, when I bought this, I just bought a logo for me, for the, you know, for Andrea Pearson and the designer never actually had anybody ask why I wanted to buy or why they wanted to buy the source files. And it really made her nervous. And I, I had to explain it, you know, in about 30 different paragraphs that I wasn't going to be using it to do anything to basically take advantage of, of her selling me the source files that it was only for my use for my business and to make sure that I had control over my, my business because it is my business. Alrighty. And I was going to say, something. Oh, I was just, I've had the thing happen where the artist just disappears in the middle of the series. And now I don't always do this because it doesn't work out that way, but I, I've become a fan of having somebody doing the illustrations and then somebody else who actually puts the package together and turns it into fonts and stuff. Cause usually those people are really fast. It doesn't take as much time to, you know, turn it into a, a print and audible and uh, here's your fonts and, and that kind of thing. Whereas the artists, may take weeks to work on a project, understandably so. And then if they get in the, you know, we've all seen this in the indie sphere, you, you mention the name of your artist if you get somebody good and suddenly they're swamped and it's six months for you even to get an update. So for those who write in genres where illustrations are common or something you want to do, that's worth considering. Uh, and then whoever your designer is can give you the specifications, like how big it should be, you know, and then you want like the left side that's going to be the back not to have much of the art and then most of the art to be over to the right. But uh, I've definitely had people just stop responding, you know, the artists and stuff. So I think that's a good idea that you were mentioning to, to get all the stuff if you can so somebody else can take over. But uh, let's jump into, we've kind of been hinting, hinting at licensing and talked a little bit about it last time, but it sounds like they also had a big panel on it. Uh, and it's, we may be able to get the speaker on as a guest on the podcast to get more in-depth information, but can you give us an overview of what she talked about? Yeah, there is, there's so much where licensing is concerned. Um, it's super dense. Uh, these parts of the workshop were just, I was just like kind of overwhelmed during them just because there's a lot to take in, you know, what your role is versus what their role is and how to approach them and how not to approach them. Um, but yeah, so she talked about the history of licensing, how it started with Peter Rabbit in the early 1900s and then how Disney basically took it to the next level and the next level and the next level and the next level. And <laughs> um, Disney, as we all know, is very big in merchandising. Um, but she talked about the different lot levels or the different models of licensing, which include traditional, so where the licensor deals directly with a licensee, and then also agents, and then last direct to retailer, which is basically where you go straight to the store and bypass all the middle people. Um, <clears throat> she also talked about the different things that can be licensed. So there is, there's just pretty much anything, like your imagination, anything you can think of can be, can be licensed. So like she talked about escape rooms and <clears throat> sorry, gardens, restaurants, cookbooks, streaming video on demand. Um, there's a ton more. Uh, basically, like I said, anything you can think of can be something that can be licensed. And is there going to be interest from these people? If you're, you know, by traditional publishing standards, kind of a small potato, like let's say you sell 10, 20,000 copies of a book as an indie author, you're, you know, assuming that book is selling for $5 or something, you're making pretty good money. But is that enough that you know, that these guys are going to be interested in you. 
Oh yeah, definitely. Um, well, okay. So I use a restaurant as a possibility for something that could be licensed. Now getting a restaurant based on your series might be hard because they're a lot more expensive, but I mean a game that costs $300, that's, that doesn't require a billion copies sold. Um, so, and if you, especially if you have a good platform, um, but if, I mean, for sure, 20,000 copies would be enough. I would think, um, 5,000, even at full price could be possibly enough. I'm not entirely sure. Like I said, they didn't actually give a whole lot of solid numbers because they didn't want to limit people. They didn't want somebody who could possibly get something to work really well to not feel like they could license out their product. And so, but if you have, even if you don't have, like I said, even if you haven't had a ton of sales, if you've got a good platform, if you've done your research and you know what you want and how to present it and how to ask for it, then you can make your case. And so don't limit yourself. Don't, it's, it's better. You know, the worst they can say is no. Right. And the good thing about these people is no is not always no. So you go and they say no once then, you know, up your game, find out what they're looking for. And then the next year go again, you know, and try again. Um, but I think I mentioned this in the last episode, but they're always looking for universes for, for ideas, for things that they can license and they can buy the licenses for. Um, and so it's kind of like how we operate. If there's a potential to make money, there's value in taking it on. All right. So, uh, what elements of a book are liable to be licensed? Like, it seems like plot is less of a draw for licensors than say cool characters. Um, everything revolves around the idea. So if the idea is cool, then licensing it, licensing for it is a good option. Um, you can have an escape room and I didn't even know what escape rooms were before, (laughs) before this workshop, but you can have an escape room that revolves completely around the plot. Um, cool characters is of course good. Um, think about star Wars though. So Han Solo, who is everybody's favorite character in star Wars and my favorite character in star Wars and Yoda and R2-D2 too, but Han Solo, right? He's the, he's the attractive one. Um, he only took them so far and then they killed him off. Right. But they're still able to wait. Are we able allowed to give spoilers on these? (laughs) Too late now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, um, so the plot, the settings, the technology, the magic system, et cetera, that's all what makes Star Wars, Star Wars. And they've licensed pretty much all of that. And so it doesn't just have to be, um, a plot. It can be characters or it doesn't have to just be characters. Sorry. It can be plot. It can be like your, your settings, your universe, the, the magic, everything. Now for those who are listening that are thinking like I write thrillers or I write romance. So I'm just using New York city or some real world element. Like what would be licensed for them? Um, okay. So thrillers, uh, the settings, the situations like the murder, the mystery, you can have games based off of thrillers, you know, like, are you going to get murdered or are you going to solve this murder or are you going to find the person before they get killed? Things like that. So there's, I mean, think about the dinner murder dinner. What is that? Those games where you go showing up dressed up as something and you play a part and somebody dies or whatever. What are those called? <laughs> I don't know. I knew what an escape room was though. So I'm oh, ahead of you. <laughs> <laughs> nice. That's, that's impressive. Well, well, apparently maybe it's just a Utah thing that we like to dress up and kill people, but, <laughs> but, um, you like, so things like that. So thrillers, you know, romances, the settings, the situations, I mean, romances, people tend to fall in love with characters quite a bit in a romance. And so you can, you can market those things. Um, a lot of this does feel like it's more geared to sci-fi and fantasy because there's so much more to those stories, meaning there's the magic system, there's the political systems, there's different worlds, there's 
monsters and things like that. And that's all stuff that can be merchandised. But romance, you know, you can still merchandise romance. You can still have games based on romance and movies and, you know, video on demand and streaming services and things like that. They're going to have to be creative for themselves. I'm not going to come up with it for them. <laughs> All right. I'm pretty sure I had a sleepless in Seattle t-shirt at one point. So there you go. Nice. Um, so we've, you've kind of mentioned that, how, you know, how do you get these gigs? Well, you go to the licensing expo. So at what point in an author's career is it worth doing that? And um, is this something also traditional authors can get involved with if they didn't sign away rights beyond like ebook, print and audiobook? No, no. Traditionally published authors can't do it. <laughs> they kidding. can't do anything? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, yes, of course. Um, they would want to check their contract just to be sure. But um, any author, if they have the rights to that, part, that piece, they can take it and get it licensed. Okay, so what was recommended by um, Dean, Chris, um, Deidre, etc. was to go for the first year without any expectations and without expecting to make any sorts of deals. Basically, just so you can get a feel for how everything works. Um, you don't need to know exactly how to present yourself and you won't be able to know how to present yourself until you know what to expect. And then they say the second year, you attend with goals in mind, um, basically knowing what the expo is all about. And then you'll be able to prepare ahead of time because you already know what to expect. You'll be able to, in that first year, you find the companies that you're interested in pursuing and then you go home and you research them and you know what they're looking for. And then that second year, you can approach them and say, this is how I meet what you're looking for. Um, again, if you have a good platform with good sales and you want to make more money, then it's worth attending the expo. Um, it's worth attending even if you don't, just so you have a goal in mind and you can start networking and formulating business plans. All right. So, I mean, that, that sort of leads into this question, which is, it seems like a lot of the stuff beyond publishing still has a lot of hard to bypass gatekeepers in place. Uh, is licensing the sort of thing that's going to require agents or other middlemen in order to reach the major detailers, uh, 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 manufacturers and dealers? Um, no, it's not. And they impressed this on us a couple of times. Agents aren't bad per se, but they definitely aren't required. And as Chris has mentioned multiple times everywhere, you can and probably should represent yourself. Um, the people at the expo, again, aren't out to get everything from you. They're not trying to take advantage of you. They want you to benefit from deals as well because, because if you benefit, then you're likely to continue giving them, um, giving them what's the word business, giving your business to them. So even bigger companies sounded like they'd be approachable. So networking, doing your research, et cetera, all of that goes a long way and you don't need to have official representation to do this. All right. And it looks like they had a panel kind of on DIY selling or selling direct. And I know we've, we've talked a little bit about selling merchandise from stuff you've made. Um, what were they kind of talking about in this, um, this topic, <laughs> I guess. Um, okay. So they talked about making things simple and cost effective. Um, so you can sell merchandise items from your website, but without it being a big cost, but I'm, I mean, this is the sort of thing that re would require a lot of hardcore fans to make any real money off of it. So like merchandise, merchandising t-shirts and mugs and things like that, you're not going to make a lot of money off of that. And, but one of the benefits to doing it would be to keep hardcore fans coming back for more and happy. Uh, it doesn't bring in a lot of money and it doesn't bring in a lot of new readers, but it's just something fun to do. And especially if it doesn't cost you anything overall, you know, there's a little bit of an upfront cost to a lot of these things. But if your hardcore fans do, do pay back that imp or what is that? The upfront um, investment that you put in, then it's, it's worth 
pursuing. This is something that I always, it's one of those, like, would I be better off writing the next book? Because you can spend a lot of time, you know, arranging the artwork and doing this, I guess, and then, you know, maybe make 20 bucks from uh, sales. But um, I don't know, did they have any, I, I know you can just use like existing logos. I guess if you got your uh, fonts and all that stuff, you could easily put them on mugs and t-shirts. But I know Joe's done a little bit more of this than I have, so I guess I'll pass it on to you, Joe. But I, this is one of those like I just it, I never really see anybody making substantial money. It's almost like something you would do as being cool for the fans, but not really planning to have it as an income source. Yeah, and I think I agree with that. Um, it's it's it makes the the existing fans proud. You know, they're able to wear that shirt or drink out of that cup or whatever. Yeah, that's sort of where my question comes in. And, and it sort of is my question. Like, th obviously, there's the direct the income you make from direct sales. And then there's the this is cool aspect of everything. But like, is there any possibility for this stuff to feed back into more book sales or to build your brand like we were talking about earlier? Um, I think it would depend on how solid of a hook is on the merchandise and how excited fans are about it. So if, if you've got something um, I think poor Adam Croft, oh my goodness, people just, they like, they market for him all the time. But that whole, would you kill your wife to save your daughter or whatever, that's a really good hook, you know? And something like that on a shirt, I think would. <laughs> I think that would gen definitely generate a lot of interest from people if you have a hook like that on a shirt for people to wear. Um, but I don't normally ask someone about something that their shirt says unless it's really intriguing. Uh, but a lot of people do wear some these kinds of things or use these kinds of things so that can can connect with other supporters or show their support of something. Um, that's basically how I see it, though. Just so listeners know, the Would You Kill Your Wife to Save Your Daughter t-shirts available in Utah, along with these dinners you go to where you kill each other. It's kind of a <laughs> special thing in Andrea's home there. <laughs> Seriously, what are they called? I know it's not just Utah. It's like this dinner you host and people come dressed up and it's, it's like, like murder mystery evenings or something yeah. like that. Yeah, something like that. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> I like killing people, okay? <laughs> but is somebody making money each time you play that game or has it become too generic, I wonder? Um, a lot of people, when they play the game, they buy a brand new game completely from start. And so, yes, the people are making a lot of money because once you figure out who the murderer is, it's not as exciting the next time. All right. Um, so one last question on this topic, because I actually remember Damon from Book Funnel mentioning that he was witnessing people that they were like selling an ebook direct from their website or maybe, no, they were selling a t-shirt. I think we'll have to get him on the show. I'll ask him what he said. <laughs> they were selling a t-shirt, but then they included the brand new arc of the ebook. So it kind of got them to buy the t-shirt because they wanted the early ebook thing too and like bundling it together for like $25. Uh, you know, so that was like one way to successfully sell direct from your website and also do the merch merchandising thing at the same time. I, I don't know if anybody talked about that kind of bundling thing. Yeah, not a whole lot. I mean, Damon did bring it up again, um, you know, print codes and things like that. But um, they've mostly talked about how some of the more popular shirt platforms <laughs> have gone down in quality. <laughs> so it was it was great times. <laughs> down I thought they were already pretty far down when I ordered one like seven <laughs> years ago no apparently they've gone even farther down oh no but there are some companies that and I can't remember off the top of my head maybe something six studio six no not studio I don't remember but um there are companies that do make good shirts but they did mention a few that were pretty popular a few years ago that aren't as good anymore 
Okay, and then there was a panel on audio and podcast and sort of the future of these things. What did they talk about in this one? Um, they talked about audios and podcasts and the future. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask you, because uh, I, I keep, for some reason here in 2019, I've heard a bunch of people recommending that you should be on podcasts as an author. Does this actually work? Because I always feel that it doesn't translate to book sales, A, and B, you're probably not going to get on if you're a new author, because, you know, we've been pitched, and we used to get pitched on our old show by people who didn't quite understand it was a marketing podcast and not there to sell their newest their first science fiction release. So I don't know, did, were they talking about that at all uh, as far as, or just putting together your own podcasts and audio or video um, and stuff? This was a panel I was on. Um, we mostly just talked about um, having your own podcast as a fiction author. I mean, there, there is something to be said about being on podcasts. I mean, I know Lindsay, you'd listen to podcasts that talk about sci-fi and things like that. Sci-fi type things. Um, it's kind of like one of those throwing spaghetti at the walls and see what sticks. The more your name is out there, the the more the easier it is for people to find you. And when you're starting, you might not have a lot of books out, but everybody has an expertise in a certain field, and especially if you're writing in that field. So I like medical stuff. My books aren't medically in, inclined in any... Well, they are. They There is quite a bit of medical stuff in them. But um, because I do have some expertise there from my major, I can get on podcasts and talk about that and then say in my one book, you know, but I, it's kind of one of those time versus monies, like you, money, like you were saying, would you be better off writing? And by the way, I met the author at the workshop who coined that phrase, Wibbo, <laughs> would I be better off writing? So that was kind of cool. Um, yeah. So they talked about on this podcast, they talked about, uh, using audio formats to reach new readers or furthering your brand. And they talked about branding. We, sorry, I keep saying they, I was on it. We talked about branding a podcast, um, AI voices, licensing your voice, narrating your own books and getting coaching on how to do that. So you are easy for people to listen to. One of the things that I think traditionally made it hard for like, even if the whole podcast is about you and your book, people are listening on the road, not necessarily like looking it up and clicking on Amazon, but it may be a little easier now that you've got Alexa and these things. Sorry, I'm not supposed to say that. Um, you know, that you can actually order it while you're walking your dog without having to like, you know, get on your phone and, and look up the website. So maybe it'll look, work a little better, but it's always seemed really tough to you know, even if you're on a pretty popular podcast as a guest to have it then translate to sales, uh, definitely have an audiobook if you're trying to do that, because I think that's going to be your, you know, your podcast listener is also going to be your audiobook purchaser and listener. Did they have any thoughts on doing like, because I remember when I first started like seven years ago, I did uh, Podio Books. That was the name of the site and they still exist. It's just it changed hands since then and they've kind of changed the format of how they release them. But you could, you know, do basically a podcast of a fiction novel and each chapter would be a podcast episode. And I, I found it useful for getting my first audiobook fans. I just gave them away from free. Is this something people are doing now? Is it worth trying if you did the audiobook anyway? You know, because you're, you know, paying the producer and doing everything yourself. Um, it, would it be worth free fiction? Yeah, this is something that I'm, I'm doing. Um, I've got a, I've been using fic fiction podcasting as a way to help me reach audiobook fans. Um, and then now that BookFunnel has up to two hours of audio available, I can take what I've already narrated and either give it away for free or sell it direct. So short stories, novellas, et cetera, things that would be too much of a time and you're like, it's going to cost you maybe $500 to make it into a, into a 
an audiobook, but you're not going to make the money back because of all the stupid credit systems and things like that. Um, but you can do this through book funnel and use it as, as a way, you know, it's like a reader magnet to build your audiobook reader list. And you can upload those to YouTube and, oh, so if you do live videos, actually, that's what I was going to say about that. If you do live videos with a Facebook group, you can upload those to YouTube, you, YouTube, <laughs> YouTube. Um, and so, or you and you can also take out the audio, put that up as a podcast and use it as free downloads on book funnel. So that's one thing that you're doing on a live video and you can put it in so many different places. So you're not replicating that work. You're not doing that over and over again, but it gives you multiple streams of, you know, of ways to find readers and to connect with readers. And, um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that you could be doing where fiction is concerned. And so once the system is set up, the process is easy. Um, so, and then to answer your question about whether or not this is something we should be putting more focus into, it depends on what your focus is. You can do these things to generate more interest in your audiobooks, like you were saying, and it just, it just depends on what you want to put your focus on. All right. So let's say that like we're interested in doing this sort of thing and I am interested in doing this sort of thing. Do they talk at all about how we should be doing the audio ourselves and if there's any resources for improving our capacity to produce audio? Um, yeah, so Joanna Penn emphasized that authors can be narrating their own books. Um, you don't need to do voices. This was my biggest hesitation when it came to narrating my own books. I've been, I've had a lot of readers ask me to narrate them because, you know, they like my voice as a person. They're like, you sound like your book and you know how your book should be read and you know these characters. I would be more interested in hearing a book narrated by you than by a professional narrator. Um, but the reason I always hesitated was because I didn't want to have to do voices. I mean, how many hundreds of voices would you have to come up with a unique tone and everything, all that. But Joanna actually was talking about how you don't have to do voices and you can actually hire coaches to make it so listeners find your self-narrated books enjoyable to listen to. Um, and acting as your own narrator is never a bad idea unless you're really, really bad at it, which most people aren't going to be really, really bad at it. And if they are, you can take, there's courses you can take, you know, from local community colleges. And, um, like Joanna was saying, hire a, a voice coach. Um, and, and the reason why it's good to do this is number one, I mean, time is money. And do you want to be spending time doing this? But then again, once you do it, it's done permanent. It's forever done. You don't have to redo it again. And so just a little bit of time up front and then it's out there forever. And then also the more familiar with your voice readers are, the more likely they are to feel like they know you, which helps build stronger relationships, which leads to more downloads and future um, best-selling titles, et cetera. <laughs> yeah, I've actually had um, with a series I did with Podium Publishing where at the end they asked me to record a message from myself as the author and I was kind of mortified because all I've got is this little USB mic and my voice is not wonderful. But, you know, I think I just wrote like a six, seven minutes. This was what I was thinking with this series and I, I don't know if people loved it or not, but it, that's sort of a non, you know, huge commitment of time or anything to even if you're going to have it professionally done by somebody else you could just do an afterward or something like that um i know that some podcasters already uh like joanna pan and, and mark lefebvre have mentioned that they i think they they're doing or they've done things where they buy one of these i don't know what are they like ai synthesis not ai but synthetic voice that's can read a story and then you know it's not going to be as good as 
the professional narration, but that they might be doing this for some short stories or something we were talking about where if you don't want to read it yourself, which, uh, you know, I think a lot of us are not necessarily going to want to do, <laughs> uh, you know, and when I did this kind of thing before, it was just taking the book that I was already paying to have produced and for sale on Audible and all the other sites and putting it out for free on iTunes as a podcast. Uh, obviously, if you do that, you're going to have to be non-exclusive with ACX. But um, that's how I did before. And I got people to get into the series and then buy the subsequent books. And that was not a big time commitment because I was already making those and putting them for sale. So that's one option too. But um, synthetic voices, are, they, are people really willing to listen to these? <laughs> was anybody there doing it successfully? Yeah, Joanna actually talked about this quite a bit. Um, um, so, and Mark Lefebvre, he does have a book that has a synthetic voice reading it. I can't remember the details that surround that, but apparently AI can do emotions now. So Joanna was talking about how the books, a lot of these synthetic voices sound almost, you can't even tell in many cases that they aren't real voices anymore. For example, um, Samuel L. Jackson has licensed his voice for Alexa. So now you can have Samuel L. Jackson talking to you instead of whatever voice they were using for Alexa before. But um, Joanna was talking, she's actually working towards this, being able to license her voice to have things read in her own voice. Um, but she, she was saying it takes about 15 hours of audio and for them to take that audio. And so if you've got a podcast that you've been doing, then you just take that and use that as a way to teach the computer how to do your voice. Um, there's not a lot of authors investing in it yet though, even though the technology might be there already for it to sound natural and Joanna stressed that that's pretty much where we're at. We're almost there. Um, but the reason a lot of authors aren't doing it yet is because none of the major platforms for audiobooks allow it. And so, but as it continues to improve though, uh, word and word of that improvement gets out, they'll probably start allowing it. I don't see why they wouldn't. I mean, that's, you know, technology moves forward, whether companies like it or not. That's very true. Uh, all right. So I guess one last thing on this topic is, uh, was there any talk about length? Because in the past, long audiobooks were where it's at because of ACX's business model, but now other things are opening up. Uh, are there more uses for short stuff now? Um, I, I, audio, long audio, audio, <laughs> um, long audio books are still where it's at credit wise speaking because of how audible does things, but there's so many ways now to do short stuff. And especially with book funnels, two hour, um, optional thingy they have, uh, there's no reason why authors can't narrate and sell their own short stories and novellas. And because it's direct, you set the price and you make the majority of the money. And so $500, you didn't even spend the $500 to hire a narrator, but you're going to be making you know, I don't, I'm not going to tell people you're going to make thousands of dollars off of your short stories. I'm not going to make any guarantees, but I mean, you'll, you're still going to be making money off of stuff that you wouldn't be able to make money off of otherwise because of the, the push for the longer audiobooks. I actually, um, with my new urban fantasy series I'm working on, my goal for the first book was 80,000 words, which is short for me, but I, I was thinking audio. I was like, I don't want anything that's going to be less than like nine hours, especially for a book one, because people won't want to spend a credit on it. And it but it's interesting because that genre, often books are only like 50, 60,000 words, but not mine. I got that sucker to 81,000, so I'm good. But, um, but for people who write shorter novels, I would definitely look into the non-exclusive with ACX if you can and put it up through Findaway Voices too and set the price. Make it like three ninety nine for book one if it's only, you know, four hours or five hours. Because uh, I think that it's really hard right now with that system to do well if people don't feel that it's worth the credit, you know, and they want to get as much as they can get for the credit. 
Yeah. And they right. actually recommended, I mean, find away voices. They, you know, Mark was saying set, set it for free. You know, that first book for free, it's like, it's a loss leader, but if you have a longer series, then people will be more likely and they don't even need to worry about their credits. Of course, audible doesn't let you set something for free, but if it's on find away voices, then you can say, Hey, here's my audiobook for free over here. And find away does send to multiple retailers that I actually need to research it, but I know that some of them do allow free, just not audible because they're evil sometimes. <laughs> right. And, um, or you can kind of pulse it too, have it be like, cause this is what I'm doing now that chirp is a thing in BookBub. I have my first one coming up in December where I think I made it six ninety nine, and they're going to drop it to 99 cents. And it gets to chirp through find away voices that it's a platform that BookBub created. But I think we'll see that in the future. Like, yeah, either make it free or be willing to make it free or 99 cents for a special. And, you know, same as eBooks, you can suck them in. And, and audiobooks, we were, you know, talking about this and mentioning it because this is actually a place you can make pretty good money. Unlike with like POD print stuff is, you know, it's never been, I've never found it worth investing a whole lot of time in trying to get paperbacks to sell unless you're pricing them so high that, uh, <laughs> that you actually make $10 on the sale of one. Usually eBooks is better and then, but the audio can be quite lucrative too. All right. So the last uh, panel we're going to talk about that they had one on was contracts, negotiations, and deal memos. I don't even know what a deal memo is guys. Um, but uh, we should mention before we jump into this, that Chris has a book on this stuff called closing the deal on your terms, agents, contracts, and other considerations. And uh, I think I have a copy somewhere. If it's at, I'll be, I'll be ready when they come calling for me, you know, <laughs> but uh, what were your thoughts on the panel there? Um, mainly the need to be calm and to do everything over email. Um, if you're calm, I mean, if you're doing it over email, you're able to present a calm face if something happens that you don't agree with or if also if something happens that you're really excited about you don't want to show super excitement because then they feel like they've already got the deal um you lose your bargaining chips basically um and also you need to have everything in writing and so that's another reason why you want to do it over email uh there's a ton of things i took away from this so i know that your next question is going to have lots of answer to it. So let's go on to your next question. <laughs> it's like, you know what I'm going to ask. All right. So, if, you know, let's say you get approached and uh, somebody wants to make a movie or, you know, get your uh, audiobook rights, whatever it's going to be. Do you have any tips for negotiation if you're doing it yourself? I, I'm horrible at this kind of thing. I hate bartering at the, <laughs> the farmer's market. You know, I'm just like, it's like, I don't know if it's an introvert thing or just a me thing, but oh man, I hate that kind of stuff. So for someone like that, would it be better to have just go contact an agent? I, I know Chris is pro do it yourself. Um, but if you're not that kind of person, I don't know, do they have any tips? Yeah. And I'm, I'm not that kind of person and I'm very extroverted. I don't like confrontation. I'm like, okay, fine. We'll just take it at your price. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think, I think, and I would agree with Chris. I think even introverts should go direct on this. Um, because if you know what you want and you rehearse with someone you're comfortable you know, rehearsing that sort of thing with, and, and this is something I'm going to have to do too, because I'm not comfortable negotiating. And, and, but also if you're doing a lot of this over email, which you should be doing it over email anyway, then being an introvert doesn't matter. They're not even going to know that you're having, you know, that you're introverted. You just show the face that you need them to see. Um, but so an agent, basically, since you can do this, you can represent yourself. An agent's just going to be taking that little bit of money that you would have made on your own anyway. And, um, 
uh, again, what the whole purpose of this was not, we weren't, this was not actually in relation to Hollywood because Hollywood is, you know, there's a whole bunch of things about getting agents for Hollywood. And they actually talked about how you should not use an agent for Hollywood because most of the agents are going to be literary agents and they don't specialize in Hollywood contracts. And so they're not going to be getting you the best deal possible anyway. But this was more focused more towards the licensing expo um, because that's what they're, they're trying to shift their focus towards. And so um, again, these people at the licensing expo, they're not out there to get you and steal your money. Um, but make sure if you are going to represent yourself that you, you kind of understand what questions you're going to have and possible questions that they'll have, and then know your way around those so that when you do approach them, you, you're sure footed. And, um, again, over email. Um, so don't be afraid to ask for what you want and be prepared for two things. They said you need to be prepared for two things. First, be prepared to say yes. And second, be prepared to walk away. Um, and it's okay to say yes after you compromise on a few things. Even if you don't get everything you want, sometimes saying yes is, is still okay. Um, and, uh, and of course, it's definitely to say okay to say no and to walk away if, if you don't get your deal breakers. They talked about deal breakers quite a bit. So you can have one or two deal breakers any more than that. And it's, you're not going to, it's just unlikely, you know, what you're going to be getting or what, you, sorry, it's unlikely you'll get all of them. Um, the company's also going to have deal breakers. And the goal is for you to get your, both of you, the company and for you to get your deal breakers and to compromise on the rest. Um, let's see, don't flip flop. Don't come back with different rules. Um, the way you set it up at the front is the way you should continue going. Don't reveal your whole hand. Chris talks about that. Every conference I've gone to, you, you've got to keep things to your chest so that, you know, you can bring things out later on. Um, another thing is all about control. They're not, and Lauren was the one who was talking about this. They're not going to be adversarial, but they're wanting to get the best deal for themselves as possible. Of course, that's natural. You're, you're wanting the same thing for you. So, um, it's all about control. So if you're approaching them, it puts them in the driver's seat and your goal is to flip that around as soon as possible because you want to be in control of your license and your property. And let's see, everything's going to be over email again. Don't worry about responding immediately. Take your time to answer calmly and professionally. And if you're, like I was saying earlier, if you're really excited about it, something, don't show that excitement in an email because have you, you guys have seen Ghostbusters, right? When they're buying the old building and what's his face? Is it Ray? Um, okay. So Bill Murray and, and Egon are like, I don't know, this place is trash. It's going to need a lot of work. And then Ray comes flying down the fireman pole. He's like, this place is great. When can we move in? And it totally ruins their whole deal. So you want to hold back that sort of excitement so that it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, ruin the deal and, and prevent you from getting future, um, not future, but prevent you from getting some of the things that you really do need just because you're excited that they are willing to work with you. All right. And, you know, you mentioned this was in reference to licensing too, but I feel like authors, indie authors get approached quite often for audiobook deals. So I, it's what I've learned now from seeing other people talking about in Facebook groups is like, you don't, whatever they offer you, you can negotiate on that. I was just like, oh yeah, sure. I'll take what you're offering me. It didn't even occur to me. This was, you know, seven years ago or something when I got my first, uh, audiobook offer from a publisher and I was just excited to have them pay for it and everything. So I said, yes, but I've since seen other people like, yeah, I said, I want this percent. And then we ended up at this percent. I'm like, wow, you have a better deal than I have with the same publisher. How interesting is that? So, um, worth, you know, doing this stuff for audio too. 
All right. Now, obviously, all this stuff is going to involve contracts, and contracts typically involve lawyers. So what I was worried, curious about is how much of the contract process can you do before you need a lawyer? Um, you can actually do quite a bit of the, of the process. Okay, so there's, there's more than one ways to look at this. So with, with a, a contract, um, you're not going to want to approach them with a possible contract unless you have one that is solid. And so what Lauren suggested on this was taking three contracts that are on the same subject, um, grab what you like from all of them, and then create your own contract and take that to an attorney for approval. Um, Chris, and they all pretty much emphasize the fact that you pretty much will miss something. You always will miss something in that contract you create. And so you have that part and you have that contract before you even approach them. And so that at that part, that point, you've already talked to an attorney. But then once you start approaching them, if say they have a contract that they would rather you sign, then you can take that to a to your attorney and have that the attorney look it over. You can also take the contract that you had and their contract, and this is where the compromise comes in. See if you can make a contract that you're both you're both happy with. Um, anyway, and then Chris also said that don't ever give out the name or the office of your attorney, otherwise people will want to talk to that person directly, and you'll get billed for that. Um, this doesn't happen so much in at the licensing expo, um, but she was mentioning, mentioning mostly Hollywood where they, they feel like the author and the writer is the most unintelligent person involved in the conversation. And so if you give them a way to talk to somebody who they feel is more um, intelligent, they'll take it. And so don't ever mention names of anybody who represents you and make sure they know. I mean, if you're prepared and organized, they'll know that you are not somebody they can take advantage of. Well, to be one of those people would be great, wouldn't it? <laughs> Although at least with an email, you can have more time to like research. Whereas, you know, on the phone, you'd be like, oh, hang on, let me Google that and see if you're making me a good deal. All right, let's wrap it up. What were your, any final thoughts that you take away from the workshop that you want to share with folks? Yeah, so I'm, I'm going to be focusing a lot on audio. Um, and I have a lot of incentive to do that since two of my books were chosen to be part of a new program by Find Away Voices Inscribed where they're going to be producing the audiobooks at no cost to me and I'll be maintaining all rights and control. I'll pick the narrators. I'll pick, um, I'll be able to do promotions and changing the costs and the price and everything. Um, but they're paying for it up front. And so I have a lot of motivation there and incentive. I want them to do well because this is a brand new program that they just started and I don't want it. I don't want to be the author who ruins it <laughs> for everybody else. And so I'm going to be doing, um, focusing a lot on audio things. So um, more on my fiction podcast and um, I'll be, I'll be focusing on making audio books off of my fiction podcast, which means taking advantage of book funnels, two hours of audio. Um, something that really, really hit, I mean, I've done this multiple times since the conference, I'm going to be eliminating leaks. And Lindsay, you were talking about this a little bit with an ad, like, is this ad actually getting me money, you know, um, a leak anywhere from something really small to something big. I stopped using a couple companies. I'm not going to mention their names, but they were subscriptions. And so going through your bank statement on a regular basis and just making sure that everything that's going out is something that you're still constantly, you're still using it, still bringing benefit to you. So I'm going to be focusing on that a lot, just getting rid of things that aren't actually doing what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and then crowdsourcing games, getting those things set up for my series, um, getting organized, figuring out all the different pieces of IP I have and branching out from what I'm already doing. I'm um, exploiting my licenses, so to speak. 
And then I'm going to be working on my different brands. I've been hacking away at it over the years, fine tuning things and figuring out what needs to be better and what needs to be more clear. Um, but I'm going to be approaching it more directly now. So I, like I mentioned earlier, I've actually purchased a logo that encapsulates all of my fiction, including, I mean, it encapsulates my romance and my fantasy because it's got, it's kind of got a flat fantasy floral feel to it. And so it, it works for fantasy and for romance. Um, and I'm going to be right rebranding my websites accordingly over the next few months to a year. And that actually leads to my last takeaway from the workshop. None of this stuff is absolutely necessary. It's not an emergency. It's not something that has to happen right now. Uh, you can afford to take things at your pace, bite off small chunks, work towards increasing your stream of income and becoming more business minded as an author. And I was going to say this, it's a marathon, not a sprint, but it's not even that. What we're setting up here as authors is something that's going to last for even 70 years, even a hundred years after we die, if we have it set up correctly, where copyright is, is concerned, et cetera. So future generations or our, our future heirs, things like that. So keeping an eye on longevity and, and that sort of aspect of our career and not just the short term things. Um, that's very important. Those are the sorts of things that I, I'm going to continue to focus on. So yes, those are my takeaways. Not a whole lot to do, right? <laughs> uh, so it's a good point. Lots of good points. And hopefully, you know, people, maybe they'll have found one or two things in this, you know, th talk we've done that they want to check out in, in more detail. And you'll see how you'll, you heard how clueless I am on, on some of this stuff. And obviously I've made some okay money over the years <laughs> without knowing what a brand deck is. But um, I, I think it's good to keep learning. And, you know, especially if you do want to maybe get into the licensing stuff that have something real professional that you can already say, here's my fonts and here's my this. And, you know, uh, it's definitely something I will consider too. Do you guys have any, Joe, any wrap up thoughts or anything? We'll get back to more, I don't know, probably I'll talk a little bit about 20 books on the next show. But I, this is sort of, I don't know. I'm on a bunch of panels, so I don't know how many panels I'm actually going to get to. You guys may be tired of <laughs> summing up panels at this point. So we'll probably just do some maybe tips that I get from the show. Uh, and I do have, I'm meeting with uh, Google Play and Amazon reps. So hopefully I'll be able to, you know, I'm taking questions this time. I haven't in the past when I've meeting with those guys. So hopefully I can get some answers that will be interesting to you guys. And then we'll start having some guests on the show so you can get some different perspectives and hopefully learn anything. Um, Joe, Andrea, anything else before we wrap up, before we go? <laughs> no, I could just say that like uh, episodes like this, I love when I have a to-do list written down on the pad in front of me when everything is done. And also I really get excited when something that is mentioned is something that I do. Like I, I have held off on, on showing it off because most people aren't watching the video right now, but I have little tchotchkes that I have made associated with my books and they are sort of following the rules of building a brand and merchandising and all that. So I feel good about having done that, even if they weren't huge money makers for me. All right. Well, thanks for listening, everyone. And you can find us on sixfigureauthors.com with the number six in the, in the show, <laughs> in the URL. Uh, and uh, we've got the episode notes. You can leave a comment. You can ask a question. We've got a few questions. We'll put together a Q&A show coming up. I know we've been going over like high-level stuff a lot, but if you have basic questions, we're happy to answer those too. I know that um, we have listeners that are still working on their first book and there's nothing wrong with that to uh, be listening to marketing and publishing stuff a little early. I just published mine and then I learned things, you know, so that wasn't necessarily the right order to go in. But um, yeah, that's about it for this time. And thank you very much for listening.
Joe, did you want to say bye first? <laughs> so long, everybody. We're working on our rhythm still. <laughs> Talk to you all later. Bye. Bye.